We know exactly what to build because we know the process. Then we built like that first MVP using stitching together Zapier with Zoho Creator. And then we moved to actual building software. But that's like literally we got to 10 million in revenue doing those things. Welcome to Fundraising Demystified, the podcast where we uncover the untold stories of successful founders who have raised venture capital to bring their visions to life. Join me, Jason Kirby, your host, as we dive into the hidden truths of the fundraising game. We'll explore different strategies, tactics, lessons learned from these entrepreneurs who have figured out how to win the fundraising game in their own way. Whether you're a budding entrepreneur, just getting started, or an established founder looking to scale your business, this podcast equips you with the knowledge and inspiration to conquer the fundraising landscape. Welcome to episode 18 of Fundraising Demystified, a podcast where we uncover the untold stories of startup founders who have gone out to raise capital to bring their visions to life. Join me, Jason Kirby, as I interview these founders and dive into the hidden truths of how they got funded. If you haven't already subscribed, be sure to visit joining.thunder.bc to get our weekly newsletter that covers valuable tips and insights for those raising and deploying venture capital. Today, we have Lloyd Lobo, founder of Boast AI, a fintech platform that provides funding based on research and development tax credits. We talk about how we raised $123 million in equity and debt and actually selling a portion of his company and position his company after bootstrapping the company to $10 million in annual revenue. He shares his career journey, why they bootstrapped, and how he structured his capital raise. He also just released a book, From Grassroots to Greatness, that you can find on Kindle for free. But let's go ahead and jump right into Lloyd's story. Hey everyone, welcome back to Fundraising Demystified. Today we have with us Lloyd Lobo from Boast.ai. Welcome to the show, Lloyd. Excited to be here, Jason. Thank you for hosting me. Now nah, we're excited to share your story. You've had a lot of success raising a substantial amount of capital, $23 million Series A and $100 million debt warehouse to, to go along with it. It'd just be great for you to give the audience a little bit of background on your entrepreneurial journey, your story, and kind of what ultimately led you to starting Boast. Definitely. So my co-founder and I had been best friends since university. Okay. Uh, and we were partners in every project. We studied engineering together. Fast forward today, what, 20 plus years? He's my daughter's godfather. I'm his daughter's godfather. Anyway, after engineering, we studied engineering in Canada. He got her to Johnson & Johnson's engineering leadership program. They picked two per country. And I moved right, right away into startups. I had asked an entrepreneur, hey, what's the best skill I could have? And if I wanted to do a company someday. And this person said, sales. So I started applying for sales jobs. Nobody gave me a sales job. So I took an entry-level cold calling job in a small startup, right? And my parents, they're from India. And as you know, with our cultures, like it's an engineer or a doctor, maybe a lawyer, and they were losing it. You have a degree in software engineering and you're cold calling? What the hell? Like this guy's son and this guy's daughter is like at Microsoft and at Google. Like, what are you doing? Fast forward today, it's the skill that served me the most because Everything from figuring out what to build to getting early customers to convincing investors to evangelizing the media to employees is everything is selling, right? Um, that's the key core skill. Anyway, so I, I went on to do that and then 
only worked at startups after startup after startup. And I was at a startup in Philly and running GTM there. And uh, the CEO was like, felt like everyone had to be on all the time. You know, the, the whole hustle porn culture, work 80 hours a week, yada, yada. And I used to be in the office till 9, 10. My wife was in residency at Drexel at the time. So she was always working 100 hours. So I got a call. I started going home one week at like 6 p.m. And uh, I got an email saying, hey, I used to like it when you're in the office till 9, 10. Your wife's a resident working 100 hours a week. What's causing you to go home? My parents were visiting me and I hadn't seen them in a, in a year. And I go home and I'm like, man. And then when Alex called me and he's like, listen, I think we should do this. And what had happened, his journey was he was at Johnson & Johnson's engineering leadership program. Then he did a startup, it failed. He felt he lacked the accounting and finance skills. So he studied accounting and finance and that unique combo of accounting and finance took him into the world of tax credits because applying for these R&D tax credits is part finance and part engineering. And he started working at big four accounting firms, writing these applications for tax credits and then figuring out, talking to the CTOs of companies to figure out what work they did in R&D and mulling through their documentation, writing reports, and then if the government audits them, defending him the audit. And he called me and he's like, man, this process is so broken. Let's just build something for the space. And I'm like, bro, <laughs> I care what we build. If I can build a company I want to work for, I'm in, right? And through that journey, Alex and I worked on a number of things together. We worked um, on Boast, of course. We worked on another product called Automatically, which was 2013. It was a chatbot built on top of Zendesk and it didn't work. And that's when people didn't even know what chatbots were. Intercom wasn't prevalent and that failed. Then I was a founding team of a company that was incubated by Bessemer Ventures and uh, it was an AI sales assistant. And I was pretty much getting early customers, validating the market, figuring out what to build, doing everything. And uh, six million bucks had been raised in the company on an idea. And uh, that also failed. And uh, and we had Boast also going. So Boast was uh, a consulting firm. That's how we started, right? And so a big believer in bootstrapping, like the best, 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 absolute best way, in my view, to bootstrap a company to millions in revenue is this, sell a service. And people get shocked, what? Sell a service? Especially in the VC world, right? Oh, yeah. low, low gross margins, labor intensive, unscalable. But you know what? UiPath, one of the largest IPOs in the last couple of years, started as a services company. Basecamp, right? Like tens of millions in profits with no VC funding, right? Their competitors have thousands of employees and hundreds of millions in funding. And Basecamp has, what, 80 employees working 40 hours a week and have more profits. They both started as services, right? So this is like super underrated. But what services does is it helps you, one, get really good at acquiring customers because customers want an outcome. They don't want software. No customer, no outcome, no, no customer kind of thing. It makes you good at customer success because you can't hide between buttons and widgets. And, uh, and you, you'll know exactly what to build, right? And then over time... You'll automate it once you understand the process and um, you'll have maximum control of your company with minimal dilution, right? So that was that was the journey. <laughs> That's how we started. And so after those two failures, we're like, listen, we're looking for all these sexy things in, in AI and this and that. But here we're sitting on an, a massive industry with hundreds of billions of dollars given in government incentives to fund businesses, broken application process prone to frustrating audits, takes a long time to get the money. Why don't we just automate this? We have clients who've been doing it manually for. We know exactly what to build because we know the process. Then we built like that first MVP using stitching together Zapier with Zoho Creator. And then we moved to actual building software. But that's like literally we got to 10 million in revenue doing those things. And in parallel, we built a large 
community because we knew that our ICP is CEOs of tech companies and we're like, CEOs, why do they want these tax incentives to fund their business? Why do they want to fund their business? To grow their company. So why don't we bring them growth knowledge? And this was a time where they weren't, podcasts weren't very prevalent. LinkedIn content wasn't very prevalent. Things like Saster wasn't exploding at the seams. And so we started building a community around our ICP, hosting small meetups and pizza nights and just say, hey, we're going to bring a founder, CEO, head of sales from XYZ company who's gone from like zero to hundred million. And uh, they're going to talk tactically talk about how to get your first X and Y, right? First X, first hundred customers, or first build your first sales team, build your first marketing op. Very, very tactical. And so our, our outreach jumped from saying, hey, buy my stuff. And imagine this, you're asking people for their research and development data. When you cold email and say, buy my stuff, they're going to be like, who the hell are you? Why don't I work with big four accounting firms? And you say, get lost, right? And so we started then shifted gears to saying, hey, we're hosting an event where we're inviting the CEO of X successful company who's going to talk about these Y topics. We only have 10 spots. And people started showing up to those meetups, like 10, 10 people started showing up, 20. We did it with Cadence. And eventually one day, 200 people showed up to the co-working space and they're like, folks, guys, this is not a pizza night. This is a full-blown conference. That evolved into our community, which is called Traction. And it's today it has about 120,000 subscribers. We have a podcast. We have a big conference. Uh, every major CEO from Uber to the president of Atlassian has come spoken at our events. But you know, it's funny is we had this chart before the 23 million round that showed our journey towards 10 and the number of events we did directly correlated. We spent, we had no marketing team and route to 10, like marketing team of zero. Quite the journey that you went on. And I want to kind of unpack a couple of pieces of it and specifically the choice to, to bootstrap as we're in a market where there's just so much, well, we're coming out of a market that was all about, you know, growth at all costs, burn, 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 raise as much money as possible. If you can't raise money, you're not successful and so on. But you bring out some good examples of massive companies that have bootstrapped and you give some great advice, you know, basically build a profitable business to allow you to then fund, you know, the the infrastructure or the development of a product. And that's giving you this place to, you know, kind of then eventually choose who you want to raise capital from. So let's talk a little bit about the, the Series A raise. And in this case, your Series A raise is not traditional. And, you know, you already got to $10 million in ARR by that time. What was your strategy when you guys decided to go out for capital? What were your goals and what, what ended up happening? You know, it's funny. I, I wrote a post the other day, which which got a lot of love. I think it had like uh, like uh, almost a thousand likes and hundreds of thousands of views on it, which said, this is the absolute best way to raise money. And I literally talk about our journey bootstrapping while building a community. So we weren't thinking of raising, seriously. My co-founder, Alex, he has been very anti-raise given past background um, and, and what we've seen, right? You give up a lot of control and you do somebody else's zero-sum game. You feed into somebody's, somebody else's definition of success and he was against that. Now, I'm Alex is based in Vancouver, Canada. I'm based in San Francisco, um, my view is is very different, but nonetheless, I've only worked at failed startups or been a part of failed startups. And my wife's a physician, and when I talked to her about raising, she's like, if you're going to raise money now that the company is bootstrapped and doing well, and you build somebody else's zero-sum game, and you fail, I cannot keep supporting the family. You're going to have to get a job at like Salesforce or Oracle or Google, and like this is it. This is like 10 plus years of only either working as an 
working as an exec at startups or like being on founding teams and like nothing's ever worked out. And like the thing is, you don't even get a proper salary. That's even worse. So I got to pay the bills. So that fear was there, right? And then what had happened was we hosted an event when there was a window of opening during the pandemic. So we were to do the big conference, uh, traction conference in 2020. And uh, the pandemic hit, obviously, and we had to cancel. Now, I can't sit through hours and hours of content. So I, I didn't have the heart to produce a two-day virtual summit. So I reached out to all the speakers and I'm like, listen, could you, would you be willing to hop on a one-hour AMA with our audience? So these were like these podcast recordings, but live with an audience. And so we started doing them weekly, gave us like two live webinars a week, which we turned the video into YouTube with the audio and a podcast. And it started doing well. We like on average, we get like eight to 10,000 views on YouTube. But anyway, it started doing well. And then there was a window. Our audience started growing and we funneled, used that window of opening to host an event. Now, one of the investors from our VC, one of the partners came to this event and they reached out saying, wanted to know who runs this event because they were very impressed with the quality of founders and everything there. And so I got on the phone and and they're like, hey, would you be willing to join our venture partner network and we'll give you carry and this and that. And I'm like, guys, I don't have the time for this. I'm just like doing these events because it funnels like leads to the business and drives our brand. Uh, but I really don't have to have time to be a scout for for a venture capital fund. And, uh, and they're like, oh, what does your business do? So I explained and they're like, what? You're selling a $100 bills for $20. You're literally saying, we'll get you, give me your data. We'll give you money from the government. And when you get the money, we'll take a percentage. And they're like, oh, what are your gross margins? And what are you, what is the growth rate? And how are you funded? How's it captable? They're like, we'd love to invest in the company. And I'm like, listen, we don't want investor money. We're good. And they're like, we're not traditional investors. I'm like, then what are you? Like debt lenders? And they're like, listen, we're growth equity. I'm like, what is that? And they explained like, you know, so there's the VC, which is invest and put everything in growth and you're either boom or you're bust. There's boom or bust, but there's also an in-between, which is happening right now, right? A lot of founders with small growths or like just they experienced huge growth only because of the pandemic, artificial digital transformation time zone, but they couldn't sustain that growth and now they're zombies. So like VCs who fund companies that end up being like slow growth or bust, they either force them to shut down or they don't give them attention. So there's that VC, which is like, I want to see you like triple, triple, double, double, double. And there is the PE or an exit, which is a buyer company, right? They're like, we're in between. If you're like 5 million plus in revenue at 80% gross margin, seeing decent growth and clean capital, profitable, we'll invest in the company, but it's more like we'll invest from 30% to you know 70% of the company and we'll liquidate the founders. So you de-risk yourself, you can take money off the table, and you can also play the long game by being involved in the company. And that like perked up my ears. I'm like, what? Seriously? <laughs> I'm like, my jaws are up. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is this is this is an asset class. This is what people do. They're like, yeah. So then I started back channeling it. I brought it up to Alex. I had another meeting with the, with the guys because it was open. And one of the partners was in San Francisco. The guys are Radiant Capital out of New York. Really good guys. Uh, one of the partners happened to be in San Francisco. So I met with him. Seemed really good. Back channeled a few conversations. Alex also looked them up and they're like, hey, it's good. So that was honestly the re decision was during the middle of a pandemic. You can feel it, although the VC world didn't want you to feel it, that this growth that is happening, that this boom is a function of everyone needing to transact online. And it's not going to last forever. 
And that's exactly what happened, right? All the VCs knew it was a gamble. If you needed to be, if you, if, if you can't transact in person, you need to go online. If you go online, you need Zoom, Shopify, Snowflake, Twilio, maybe a whole bunch of different tools, right? And, uh, and that's the reality of the situation. And so everybody needed to transact online. And um, the growth you experienced in 2020 and 2021, you can't sustain, obviously. And so at the turn of 2022, interest rates went up because they couldn't keep the interest rates low forever. And a market falling always follows an interest rate hike. A recession always follows an interest rate hike. You can you know, look at every recession. And this, this was a one-two punch because the markets, the companies couldn't sustain the growth they had in 2020 and 2021. So started missing projections in 2022, coupled with, hey, <laughs> interest rates are up. So now what happened? Valuations, markdowns, customers are not buying, missing projections, not growing, a lot of zombie companies. The unicorn porn, porn, the unicorn porn that was proliferated in 2020-21 is like shattered, right? And so I think it was a good bet uh, that we played for us personally and uh, also good for the company because you're on a path to grow sustainably, right? And if you look at it, especially in SaaS, especially when you have recurring customers, recurring revenue, even if you're going slow, after 10 million, you're gonna have to shoot somebody in the face to take it to zero, right? And so why try to build some zero-sum game and try to aim for like, go from 10 to 30 million in one year and hire more people, like more die of indigestion than starvation. Why try to choke the system and, and ruin something good? And so I think I think we made the right decision because had we raised a lot of money and put it just on the balance sheet and tried to gone from 10 to 30, I don't know if it would have played out like that. I think we would have destroyed the company. It would have been a gamble basically, right? Yes, we had a repeatable, scalable channel. We, you know, it was community that we built that had been growing coupled with a sales team. And our sales team had great social proof because there was a lot of going to events, going to our events, hosting our events, partnered events, and uh, you know, shaking hands, kissing babies, like a lot of that. And so when you cold email or call, there's social proof there associated. But now if you like, it ne it's never linear like that, right? Oh, you got 10 salespeople, let's add 50 and 5X the revenue. It never works like that, right? Because you got to add like SDRs, you got to add SDR managers, you got to add operations, you got... There's a lot of in-between stuff that goes on, like piping and tooling and process, and it breaks. I mean, like, I've seen this with a lot of friends. So I think we made the right decision for, like, sustainable growth and uh, de-risk the founders who had been burning their soul for the last several years. Well, being able to have the option to find a capital partner, well... I guess you didn't find, they found you uh, more serendipitously, but what you had done to lead up to something like that is you built a, a great business, an attractive, you know, attractive business that was profitable, that served you and your your partner, but uh, you had to be presented an opportunity and be in the position to accept that opportunity is, you know, basically what you built up to, to that point. And, you know, to take a little bit of money off the top and, you know, allow the company to kind of grow more organically. And also, like you said, it would have been a gamble because to 3X the company, which would be the expectation in 2020 and 2021, you wouldn't, those channels might break and or you'd have to add new channels that are unproven and throw a bunch of money at them and you'd be expected to, to grow at all costs and potentially, you know, like you said, the, losing the company or losing more control or taking my, more dilution in future rounds. And you know, this created a very positive outcome for you. And I think more founders need to listen to stories like this of focusing on building a great business that gives you options and not being solely dependent on 
raising venture capital. And ironically enough, like more venture capital, more venture capital comes your way if you build a business like you did. You get sought out and create more opportunities that way. And and you know that that was the thing, right? So like the four steps we did to bootstrap, like I said, hone in the, on the ICP, talk to your customers, offer a service manually, figure out the manual workflow, and then you know exactly what do I automate, eliminate, delegate. Meaning, if you're manually collecting data, there's APIs, pull it automatically. Then normalize that data, then apply workflow. But in parallel to doing those things, build a community around your audience. Like you know, you may have a very niche ICP or whatever your ICP is. Hone in on that and bring them together. When people are buying your product or listening to what you have to say, you have an audience, right? When you bring that audience together, it becomes a community. When that community comes together to create some impact, like Basecamp did with Ruby on Rails, or like GitLab does, or even Harley-Davidson's community, look at every major community when they come together to do social good or to create some impact, it becomes a movement. And when that movement has undying faith in its purpose, it becomes a cult or a religion, right? From Christianity to CrossFit, that is the journey of going from obscure to iconic. But the point I'm trying to make there is if you don't bring, build a community around your ICP in parallel, then you are relying on, I guess, happenstance for people to hear about you. You got to engineer your own network, right? And so when you do that, people will hear and see you, word of mouth will spread, and that becomes a very low cost effective channel. Like VCs will come to your events, VC will will engage with your community and so on. Yeah. And being able to do that is, you know, something that I feel stands out as unique and uh, credible to what you guys have done and creates this opportunity for you. And kind of something that we didn't get a chance to to dive into just yet, because you you raised that round. It it's presented as like a traditional series A, but you know, it was uh, kind of like a secondary for you guys. You guys get some money off the table, come in to get some you know, balance sheet capital to go grow and do what it's got to do. But you also raised a substantial debt warehouse of $100 million. You know, what was the strategy behind that? Was it the same investors? Kind of walk us through how that came about as an opportunity and how did you go about getting it? Incidentally, we met the debt provider also through our community, right? See, this is this is the thing. This is the value. When you, you know, this is a framework I want to I talk about and maybe there is some some learning here. When you figure out an underserved niche and identify their pain points, you figure out where they eat, breathe, drink, sleep, what are the aspirations and goals. When you understand the problem, right? They always say, fall in love with the problem, not the solution you're offering. If you keep falling in love, if you fall in love with the problem of your customer, your vision becomes a lot bigger. So our vision wasn't automate tax sweaters. Our vision was to enable innovators to change the world. Why? Because every dollar spent in innovation returns 20 to the universe. Vaccines, robots, clean drinking water is a function of innovation. Yet in the last 20 years, more than 50% of the Fortune 500 companies have evaporated because they can't innovate. And so our goal was bring you the funding and the know-how to innovate faster. So R&D innovation, right? Funding the R&D starts with R&D credits, but it takes a long time to get that money. So how do I front load you the cash so you're not waiting for that money? And then the next product, we're like, we're collecting your interesting R&D data. And we also have your financial data because we're lending you money. Now I can pull interesting insights and tell you what projects you should invest in, who you should hire, et cetera. So 
basically AI-driven engineering productivity and engineering investments, right? I think following the journey of the customer outcome, right? Customers want an outcome. They don't want software. They're looking for R&D money to drive some business outcome. If you follow that pro that outcome they're looking for, I think you can come up with good product solutions. So that's that's what it was. It's like customers like taking a long time to get the money from the government. How can we give you the money? Now, through our processes and the technology, customers, like the applications we're putting in were like 99% accuracy. So it's like basically a government-backed security. So getting money to lend against that was an easy thing. And then we met a friend through the distraction community, became good friends. And she's like, hey, we'll put together a warehouse facility and, and lend to this, help you lend to these companies. So it, it became a win-win because a good outcome for the customer, they're not waiting long. And it's a good outcome for us because it gives us a little uh, more spread, right? It improves our NRR. And now overall, though, it's good for us and the customer because before we were collecting R&D data and payroll data and, and some bookkeeping data because whatever we need to learn about the business's R&D, money spent on contractors, supplies, and payroll. But now we're like, hey, I got to underwrite you. So I also need to know if you're financially stable. So I have your banking data and I have all your books, not just what you spend on R&D. So now I know what financial outcome your R&D is driving, right? Traditionally, R&D has been considered a black box. Like sales does something, you know the outcome. So now how do you tie R&D to outcomes uh, is a conversation in board meetings that we can we can break with the next set of products that uh, that Boast will build. So when looking at this this credit, you know, for businesses, I guess, give, you know, for businesses listening, how do they take advantage of this credit? What should they look for? And is this cash in their pocket if they're not profitable? Is the government giving them basically free money for investing into R&D? Yeah, definitely. No, it's R&D is a broad term. It's basically product development. Are you developing new products or improving existing products? In the United States, you can get up to 20% of your product development dollars as a cash back. If you are less than uh, five years of revenue, right, in the business, it's a cash back. If you're not, then um, it's a tax credit, basically. And in nice. Canada, it's 64% of your R&D spend as a cashback. So anywhere from like, you know, every country offers it, like UK, Australia, France, New Zealand, every like Commonwealth country, US, Canada aside. And Canada is as high as 64% of your R&D spend as a cashback. You know how insane that is? You don't even need to raise venture dollars. That's insane. That is absolutely absurd. Yes, for every dollar, you're basically doubling your, or not fully doubling, but like, you know, you spend mm -hmm. a dollar and get 64 cents back, you can spend a lot more on R&D. Exactly. Um, we'll definitely leave that in the show notes for people to, to learn and reach out to you to, to see if they qualify and, and how they can take advantage of that. So once you raise the, the $100 million debt facility, which you know came shortly after raising the A, what has it done for the growth of the business and the opportunity for the business? And um, yeah, what were some of the key, you know, key learnings from that experience? Definitely. I think, I think one of the key things is startups are built in phases, right? Phase one is validation. Get 10 customers to pay you to try it out. Phase two is product market fit. What are you optimizing for? increase your customer base to family from 10 to 50, you're optimizing for high retention. If you have like 100% NRR, your product market fit in my view. But what is the leading indicator of retention? It's engagement. If people are not using your product, they're not going to retain even if they bought annual contracts. Then the next phase is product channel fit. You figure out a scalable, repeatable channel to get creep and grow customers. This is a journey of mostly bootstrap companies, by the way. You can't 
don't have the energy to do 10 things at once. And then you get to a point of scale where, you know, you may be like five, six million in revenue, like four to five, six million in revenue. You have one customer coming through one channel, getting one value, and then you put 75% of your energy on stoking the fire, like you put fuel on the fire, and you spend 25% of your energy on trying new things, new channels, new products, new markets. And so that's that's what we effectively did, like, you know, added new products, right? And the R&D analytics one, which we have coming out, we expanded the R&D lending, like we could invest heavily in that as well. We went into some new markets and exploring new markets and new channels. I think that's that's how we look to spend the money. It gave us basically wings, right? But we didn't ignore the 75% fuel on fire because the 25% is a test phase. And provided you've gone through validation, product market fit, product channel fit with that 25%, then you can throw fuel on fire as well. So it gave us more more like stability and and credibility to to go longer and faster kind of thing. Oh, that's great. And um, yeah, as we kind of you know wrap up here, this has been a great story for you to share and uh, you know communicate with uh, with everyone. You know, something that I want to kind of tap into a little bit is once you've kind of left, you took some money off the table, you still have some upside in the business, um, but what are you doing now? Like what, what's something that you're you're working on now? What do you focus on now? Yeah, definitely. So I'm working on a book right now on community-led growth, basically. Um, Sounds appropriate you know, for your experience? Definitely. So I, as I look back and reflected on my journey after le- leaving the day-to-day operations of the company, I was president and co-founder and basically head of community. And as I reflected on my journey, from bootstrapping boast to being a refugee of the Gulf War where the country was evacuated. I was in I was like eight or nine years old. The community helped the country to safety to, you know, um everything I am in my in my life. Even the investors came to the community is a function of, of that. And you know, we sit in 2023 here, right, where marketing is literally taken a bloodbath. You see uh, CPMs are up. It costs twice as much to generate the same ROI from the same channels. Generative AI has made it worse, I feel, because you're seeing the same kind of content. Like, you know now somebody is like chat GPT copy pasting, even in your LinkedIn comments, right? And consumers are tired, man. Clickbait, spam, pop-ups, giving personal data to access crappy white papers. And as you look at it, it's going to get worse and worse. The old marketing is build your company's brand. The new marketing is rise of micro-influencers and personal brands, like people buy from people. And actually, if you look at some of the most iconic companies, nothing really has changed, right? Like the best, the most iconic companies were built on communities. Like if you look at Harley-Davidson, almost bankrupt in the 80s, rebuilt on the ethos of community. Community wasn't a marketing strategy, it was a company strategy. Employees went out and started writers clubs. Writers became employees, employees became writers, oversight from the president. It's an iconic company today. Or Apple, right? Apple sells the outcome, not the feature, right? Huge communities become a better creative. HubSpot, perfect example. IPO'd at a billion, today it's worth 20 billion. HubSpot had an inbound community before they even had a product. As an engineer, everything I learned about marketing was from HubSpot's inbound community before they even had software. So I I truly believe that yesterday's innovation always becomes today's option and tomorrow's commodity. Look at the GPS. It was was hard to get a hold of. Then it became an option in the car. Today is a commodity. It's a car play. But if you build a community, you won't become a commodity because you're constantly focused on the customer and that community is giving you the feedback and the voice to keep reinventing yourself. Um, and so this book is about that journeys from 
Harley Davidson to HubSpot, Nike and Red Bull, Atlassian, as well as startup communities like Saster and Startup Grind and communities big and small really on how to leverage the power of people to accelerate your growth in the most cost-efficient way possible. And so that's that's the book. I talk to thousands of people, hundreds of businesses, asked the same questions over and over again, compared notes with our own journey, bootstrapping Bose, and came up with, distilled it to 13 rules to build and scale community-led businesses. Well, that sounds like an amazing book that I'm sure our audience would be interested in learning more about. Where can they learn more about you, the book, and Bose.ai? Definitely. So... I'm on LinkedIn, Lloyd Lobo. That's the place I'm most active. My name has an E in it, double L-O-Y-E-D, Lobo. And I was bullied as a kid because there was an E in Lloyd. And I, I asked my mom, why did you do this to me? Why did you butcher my name like this? And she would always say, I always envisioned that you'd be an entrepreneur someday and you'd want to, um, if you wanted to ever brand name or like, you know, trademark your name, you wouldn't be able to with a generic name like Lloyd. So I threw an E in there. That's so funny. Wow. Sometimes sometimes you will it into I, I, I kid you not, I asked this every time to her as a as a kid growing up, like why, why, why? And she said, sometimes you will it into existence. I right? love attraction. And uh, the book will be on from grassroots to greatness.com. It's from grassroots to greatness, 13 rules to build iconic brands with community led growth. Jason Lemkin of Saster did the Ford on that book, and I'm very grateful. He's been he's been a longstanding mentor, giving us free boots when we started Boast. And always there with his advice, so eternally grateful to him. And um, Boast is Boast.ai, and if you want to tune into our Traction community, just go to tractionconf.io or search Traction Podcast on YouTube or uh, on Spotify. Awesome. Oloid with an E. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today uh, and sharing your story and sharing an alternative journey that I think most founders are not aware of. And as we go into this new market where things are not as clear as they once were or not as you know, hot or kind of, as you said, the unicorn porn. Uh, it's it's wise for entrepreneurs to consider their options and see what's out there uh, and and kind of play, but, but primarily focus on building a great company that build, you know generates profits. And uh, I think that's ultimately what you did and that created opportunities and windows for, for new choices for you to choose. Um, but really appreciate you being on the show today, Lloyd. Uh, look forward for our audience getting to, to dive into this and you know take advantage of your book and other opportunities. Definitely. You know, as, as I close out, I want to share that um, a special thing told to me by an entrepreneur, um, you know, don't build somebody else's definition of success. Focus on building your own definition of success. And there were three questions he gave me. They're very cru- crucial. Uh, his name is Jafar Awanadi, founder of Lupio, which also had a big growth equity exit and, uh, and now Barley. A- and he said, what is your personal definition of success? How much money do you want in your bank account? Is there a version of the company you don't want to work for? Um, how long do you see yourself running the company? And what is the argument for raising versus not now? And those things are very important because as founders, we don't write this down, right? But if you think about it, when a founder and VC goes into the first conversation, mentally we're always misaligned anyway. A VC is looking to make X return in Y years. A founder is not thinking that way, especially at the seed, seed round. They think they, they're going to run the company. And a founder should be very deliberate. Ultimately, you're doing this for personal financial freedom. Yes, you want to create impact, but if you don't care to take care of yourself and your family, you'll never be able to create impact in the world. So you got to ask like, what is my personal definition of success and how much money do I want in the bank account? And play that. And and if raising VC money is not going to optimize that for you, then 
you know, find the right route for you. Or like your definition of personal definition of success. Maybe it is you want to, you know, not work 100 hours a week or you want to work from somewhere. You don't want to be answerable. If your values are not aligned, don't go in that relationship because it's always going to be pain. That's that's my closing advice. Thank you so much, Jason. Love this. Absolutely love your questions. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for being on the show, though. I appreciate it. Awesome.